So do you want? How do you want to? You want me to just read this and then we talk about it, or do you want to? You like? Uh, yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way to do it. <laughs> it's just, it, it, it's a lot of. I'm really nervous. <laughs> it's <laughs> if anyone shouldn't be, you know. I mean, I guess you you can be, but like. You, this is old hat for you, I, right? For some reason, this feels like the craziest thing I've ever done. <laughs> in my life, you know. will grow strangely In the light of his glory. Are you reading King James? Yeah, should I read a different... I have the... I only... I'm such a dummy. I love the King James Bible, but I could read a different... uh... It's not... No, it's not dummy at all. It's the most... (laughs) It's the most historic... Historically respected translation. Yeah, yeah, no, you can... I'm gonna gonna quote in the ESV. Okay, well, that's the one that's not as hard to understand, which is good. Yeah, exactly. It's the... See that? I'm the dummy. No, I'm so. a dummy. I don't even understand what I'm reading. <laughs> I'm just like, ooh, this is the good one. <laughs> All right, I'm going to read it. <clears throat> I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength, and whom I will trust. My buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and a fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. 
The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands hath he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also upright before him, and I kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore hath the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyesight. With the merciful thou wilt shew thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt shew thyself upright. With the pure thou wilt shew thyself pure. And with the froward thou wilt shew thyself froward. For thou wilt save the afflicted people, but wilt bring down high looks. For thou wilt light my candle. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those that trust in him. For who is God save the Lord? And who is a rock save our God? It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and setteth me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness hath made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, that my feet did not slip. I have pursued mine enemies, and overtaken them, neither did I turn again till they were consumed. I have wounded them, that they were not able to rise. They are fallen under my feet. For thou hast girded me with strength unto the battle. Thou hast subdued under me those that rose up against me. Thou hast also given me the necks of mine enemies, that I might destroy them that hate me. They cried, but there was none to save them, even unto the Lord, but he answered them not. Then did I beat them small as the dust before the wind. I did cast them out as the dirt in the streets. Thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people, and thou hast made me the head of the heathen. A people whom I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they shall obey me. The strangers shall submit themselves unto me. The strangers shall fade away and be afraid out of their close places. The Lord liveth. And blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God that avengeth me, and subdueth the people under me. He delivereth me from mine enemies. Yea, thou liftest me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Therefore will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises unto thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king, and sheweth mercy to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forevermore. Verse 2 in the ESV, rather than come up with different synonyms for the word rock, it just says rock twice. It <laughs> really? just says It just says... The Lord is my rock and my rock? The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. <laughs> the Lord is my rock and my rock and my rock. My God, and by the way, my rock. <laughs> <laughs> 
I was looking in my concordance to see if that was one of the like key com- key verses that they were comparing because I wanted to see what other translations said. But it seems like using rock there twice might be the most accurate. But it's it's kind of like an odd stylistic choice. Yeah. We were just talking about the KJV versus the ESV and what difference it makes. I feel like that was the main thing. What is um? Is, what's the word that it kept using? A, a buckler. Buckler. Uh, what's what's a buckler? I didn't actually bother for all the notes that I made to prepare myself to not sound like an idiot. I didn't actually bother to look that one up. So I, I, I for some reason I was like, uh, it must be like a shoe or something, because what has a buckle? But there's no way. Um, well, because like, <laughs> I was just looking up. <laughs> A buckler, a small round shield held by. Okay, so he's my shield. He's like a shield, a round shield. So it's it's oh, a it's okay. like a war uh, image, which makes sense because, well, as one of the many topics that could be discussed pertaining to this psalm is the imagery of war, which, quite likely in the context, not that I would know because I'm not <laughs> educated, but um, <laughs> quite likely. This was this did pertain to real warfare, real conflict that happened in the historical context. But uh, war is also often used as an allegory for the battle between good and evil. Yeah, I mean, David went through it. He he went through a lot. Right. <laughs> and, and I think this this psalm is positioned in a time where he is he's being pursued. Right. Uh, like everything in like First and Second Samuel, like the entire story of David is like, and he's being chased all the yeah. time. Chased, C H A S E D. Certainly not C H A S T E. Which brings me to another point I want to bring up later on about how upright and how like clean his hands were and how upright of a person he is. Because that kind of makes you think a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, David maybe is not the best guy to be saying this stuff. Although, I don't know. (laughs) It's not really my place. (laughs) He's, he's, I mean, he has to be the one that says it. Right, because he was right. chosen by God. I mean, that's what this is saying also, that David was chosen by God and David is, is a king who is ordained by God to be a king and then his lineage is righteous. You know, his lineage is chosen. That's kind of how it ends. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, that his line will rule forever. Right. And towards <laughs> the end, kind of. the towards the end, that, that, that bit about how, like, strange and like different people will come to to worship him or different people will come to like be ruled by him and he like welcomes them to what was the passage exactly it was um strangers shall submit themselves to me unto yeah me. strangers shall submit submit themselves to me um and it, that's that felt very much like a almost prophetic mm-hmm. word like looking forward to like gentiles being welcomed into mm-hmm. into like the people of God or the chosen people yeah, as soon as they hear of me they shall obey me interesting mm-hmm. I have um, I have many serious thoughts about this psalm that I I wrote down 
Uh, yeah, start from the beginning. We have right, lots. Great. We've been talking. I feel like you and I have Fantastic. been talking about this psalm for a little while, so we probably yeah. have, you know. But it sounds like you have like your thoughts organized a little more than I do. So well, I don't really you... because the problem is I I don't know how to have a natural conversation. I, I just <laughs> wrote down a bunch of stuff <laughs> in, a, in a list <laughs> with no concern for for anyone else's thoughts. Um, but I think that there. So the reason that I thought of that, even we maybe one reason I don't. Th- I, you you have your own relationship to this song, of course. But what made me uh, think of it was there for some reason I was trying to recall this, uh, and I thought it was part of a psalm, but it turned out to be an interpretation of this psalm. But there was an entrance antiphon that was part of one of the masses I watched with my grandmother years ago. That was um, it. It was an interpretation of. Uh, eight, uh, f- f- five to seven verses five to seven of this. So the the antiphon was the waves of death rose about me, the pains of the netherworld surrounded me. In my anguish I called to the Lord, and from His holy temple He heard my voice. So you know, uh, similar to but a t- more truncated version, and also with no resolution. It's a little kind of um, spookier, for lack of a better word. <laughs> the antiphon versus because in in you know, 18, in the actual Psalm 18, this resolves almost immediately that, that God heard David's voice out of his temple and then the earth shook and trembled. And so God immediately responds, God is wroth at David's enemies immediately. Um, so it's just, it was interesting. I don't know. I remember that Antiphon, I just thought it was some really beautiful poetry. Um, and as is this Psalm, of course. But so one of the things that because of that, the waves of death and similarly the sorrows of hell or the snares of death in this season of Lent we're of course you know everything so I mean we're, we're of course more um focused on the passion than I mean of course now of course I'm saying this is someone who is always thinking about the passion so it's not as though it's it's really not like I, I stop thinking about it after Lent because I don't I think about it all the time it's the most the crucifixion is the most important moment in human history so it's not like i don't think about it but but in lent the idea is that the season calls to mind for us the 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 passion of christ and the snares of death uh in this case i mean like we were saying there are multiple interpretations of this psalm you could look at it as as quite literally as as a as um the personal speech of David um, in his context where this is uh, part of his relationship with God and you can also look at it more generally as I think many biblical texts are meant to be uh, used or or interpreted as an allegory for us and for our relationships with God and so this narrows of death to kind of make a finally get to the point it reminds me of earlier today we were talking about this passage from Romans which is Something that I think is just in the, at least on the, according to the Lutherans, I don't know if they use different readings than the Catholics, but uh, it was just one of the readings today for this Mass, that uh, Romans five twelve to 19, um, death, death as a product of the fall, and that by Adam's transgression, he brought death, and in this case, you know, death and sin and evil are all sort of synonymous, but it is interesting because death... Uh, death comes about because of the fall. 
So there was no death before the fall. And so in Romans, it says, and this isn't the King James Bible, this is just, I wrote this down, but that death entered the world through sin and death reigned from Adam to Moses. And even, even those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam would die because of the fall. And then it goes on to say that, you know, for if by the one man's offense many died, Adam, much more by the grace of God and by the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many, as though one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And so Adam's disobedience made us all sinners, made us all die, and Christ's obedience made us all righteous and made us all live. And so the fall created death, the fall created sin and evil, the passion restores life and, and goodness. Um, so <laughs> I swear it's related <laughs> because, because um, gosh, I'm sorry, I'm so nervous. There's so many things in the psalm. David David is talking about, and this also, I don't want this to just be me lecturing you, which is what, <laughs> me, what I wrote down. I I wanted you on here to, so I could hear your thoughts, so okay. don't be self-conscious about I'm so talking. sorry, because I'm like, I've been talking for thoughts. at least seven minutes straight by myself, and I feel bad. Um, but, but um, so then this is my Christological, or whatever, messianic interpretation of this psalm. Uh, death and the enemy is also enemies. Uh, the enemy is often uh, Satan is often referred to as the enemy, at least in the, mm -hmm. in the New Testament. So, so Christ defeated death, and David, in obeying God, becomes powerful. David, in much of this psalm, is revealing his weakness or referring to his weakness. In fact, this psalm begins. I mean, after he says, "I love you, God," which is you know wonderful. Uh, it, it, it first presents a situation where David is in distress and he calls upon God to help him. David is helpless without God. And in obeying God, he becomes powerful. And in a, as much, in a similar way, Jesus Christ, and of course Jesus Christ is not solely a man, Jesus Christ is God. So we cannot really compare you know, the, the trials of Christ to those of any man. But Jesus Christ obeyed God and obeyed God's design. Uh, and that's how the resurrection and the redemption of the world came about. And Jesus also is viewed as a victor. You know, there's the phrase Christus victor because Jesus triumphed over death when he died on the cross and he descended into hell or the underworld or however you want, you know, however it's in, um, interpreted, but the realm of the dead, so to speak. And then in doing so, in resurrecting, created for us eternal life. He triumphed over death, and this is a victory. But how did Jesus accomplish this victory? Was he, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't a traditional warrior king in how he accomplished this victory. You know, early Christian literature, like the Dream of the Rood, will sort of portray Jesus as somewhere in between, where he, where he mounts the cross fearsomely, the Rood, you know, and he, he's mighty upon the cross. So even as he's being crucified, he's still, there's still some of those conventions at play. But Jesus, mm -hmm. according to the New Testament, according to the Bible, is he dies the death of a slave. So he is in the lowliest position possible uh, when he dies. And so in order to achieve this victory, which is, you know, this heroism, really, in order to become a hero, Jesus must die the death of a slave and must lower himself to the lowest possible station. And I think in a similar way, 
there in in uh, verse 35 the psalm says thy gentleness hath made me great so that weakness through weakness david has he's he's achieved victory heroism he's triumphed over the enemy the enemy could also mean sin and death and evil and mm -hmm. because of his weakness he was delivered by god and so through gentleness weakness and humility david triumphs yeah there's almost two things going on here because uh, david's in distress he's calling out to god and the, there's this miraculous uh intense fiery vision of God coming down from the heavens mm -hmm. and, and sort of taking action, you know, on God's own. But then it's like David is also uh, strengthened by God. So like God acts, mm -hmm. but then gives David the capacity to act further and better. Uh, like, you know, he says that his, his arms right. are strong enough to bend a bow of bronze and things like that. But all that happens after God comes down with coals flaming forth, riding on a cherub. Amazing image, by the way. Couldn't get yeah. that out of my head. <laughs> Trying to picture it. Couldn't get it out of my head. But there's, yeah, so there's like two, two actions happening here. And it's not that they're separate, right? Because Jesus is like a new David. As much as he's a new Adam, like he's a new David. He's a new king. Mm -hmm. And he's in the line of David. But then like Jesus being God, it's, I almost saw part of this is like God is acting to weaken sin to the point where mm -hmm. man can be strengthened in order to overcome it and to conquer, which is uh, complicated because mm -hmm. It, it kind of implies like, oh, well, like God gets you like half the way there and then like you're on your own or something like that, well, which I don't think is really what it's saying, but <clears throat> it's, it's just really interestingly constructed. Well, right. And he says, to your point, he says, uh, God girdeth me with strength. And he also says he teaches my hands to war. So it's like David couldn't fight before God moved his hands. But I think what you're saying or what you're saying is sort of, it's not exactly right necessarily, but that God takes us half of the way there. I mean, I think that that's actually true in Christian theology, not that this is a, you know, we must acknowledge that this is uh, a Judaic text, you know, from the, the, the Old Testament, and so, but, you know, like we said before, like as a Christian, and especially in this season, I have a hard time <laughs> not doing a messianic reading of this text, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Jesus Christ was, was a Jewish person anyway but uh who is also in the lineage of david as you said but um god uh god allows us to have free will and so there is some ambiguity there in free will because why why did god allow us to have free will and as a result of his allowing us to have free will for example adam transgressed which caused the fall which created the world as such and, and created <laughs> unleashed sin and evil and death into the world so why why would god ever allow this but in at least christian theology i mean the god the characterization of god differs somewhat in the old testament versus the new testament and also in various parts of the old testament you know you know differs um from other parts of the old testament but it's god the father like this is of course something it's just this is the most like Christian theology in no specific biblical basis for it comes to mind, but, but God, the way that God loves us, God loves us like a father. And so a father 
doesn't force his children to love him, but rather longs for the love of his children. Mm. So in that sense, God has a will for all of us, and he has intentions for all of us, and his intentions are perfect. His intentions are always good, and they're, they're generally they're what is right for us. But we do ultimately make the choice as to whether or not we conform to those intentions or discern them or try to discern them. And so I think that, you know, even someone like David, of course, I can't, I can only speculate, but any one person, I mean, God has a design and the idea is that the design will triumph no matter what, it will triumph against all adversity, but we still have a personal responsibility to that design. Yeah, and it's like obeying God is not just, not just seeing out his will, but surrendering um, so it's not like just taking action, mm-hmm. but it's also understanding that like no action we take is ever sufficient, that it, it requires a surrendering to God's will in order to um, to really understand. Like the, the thing that I struggle with a little bit in this psalm was um, verses... 25 through uh, 27-ish. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. Blameless with the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Mm. And I... um, It's hard for me, like, picturing the God of love that's... um, that's that we see as humble and giving and um and always uh sort of uh sacrificing himself in jesus um to see like a god that in this iteration or this this like vision of him that we see here is like almost like repaying people (laughs) evil for evil Mm -hmm. which is (laughs) <laughs> which is odd to me, but it, I think it almost, it, it more speaks to what I was starting with when I started talking here was that uh, it requires us to surrender to, to be empowered by God, to know his will for us and to be able to act it out in our lives to do good. We have to know, we have to surrender ourselves to him in, um, surrender our strength to him, allow him to work through us. Does that make sense? Yeah, there, there are two things that come to mind when you said um, about to the, I forget the exact wording, but the, the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. So there is in the Old Testament, again, I, I have a very limited education, but in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a sort of classic cause and effect convention that comes up time and again, especially in the earlier texts where people do wrong things and then they suffer the consequences and God also has these very long speeches about how the Israelites if they're his people they must follow his will they they must they must do the right things and if they sin against him or if they turn away from him they'll no longer be his people and they'll suffer from and their children's children will send their children's children's children etc and generations and generations of suffering will be visited upon you know them until finally until or unless finally they return to him whatever whatever so my point is that there is like a sort of classic like very straightforward cause and effect where yes you do the wrong thing the wrong things happen to you too because god 
will punish you. But the way that it's phrased, at least in the translation you're reading, is interesting because I can imagine that to a crooked person or to a sinner, God may seem torturous or may seem like a torturer. Mm. And that that is a sort of impression or perception of God that is skewed and that is crooked. And often people will say things, people who, I mean, again, not that I have any place to evaluate, and it really is, it depends on the person, but I think that a lot of people who are living in sin will say things like, oh, I don't believe in God, or or God hates me, or God is punishing me, or God is against me. They'll have this perception of God as a torturer or as, um, uh, you know, vengeful or angry or something, when really... You know, they, they they don't want to take responsibility for their own uh, circumstances. Yeah, it's almost like I hear people say, I can't believe in a God that would allow blank. Right. I can't believe in a God that would let blank happen. As though, um, well, there's, there's two, right, there's two schools of thought in that line is, I can't believe in a God that would allow these terrible things. Or I can't believe in a God, if God is all-powerful and, and controls everything and and says it and it's done, then I can't, then God is causing all of these bad things. But I, yeah, I don't really know that that's, it's not sound we have really anywhere scripturally. Yeah, I mean, it's like evil exists and evil, I mean, this is what we were talking about earlier this morning too, about that passage in Romans 5, mm-hmm. is that evil predates death, mm-hmm. that like sin uh, sin is a product of evil, right? Right. Um, and, and these are big concepts. The sin of Adam was the action of the sin of Adam, not necessarily like a sinful nature, but it was that sin that opened, essentially opened the can of worms, you know, like allowed this sin nature to proliferate. And so in that way, like those things just happen. They exist. And can God act to change them? Sure. Not will God do it at all times? No. Um, and should God do it at all times? No, probably not. Right, is it going to flood the world again and again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how many more? T- yeah. How many, how more, many more floods? <laughs> <laughs> We're running out of wood to build the arks. Okay. <laughs> but it keeps happening, uh-huh. and and I think that. Knowing David is crucial to understanding the context for this psalm, too, because the psalms, I um, I was having a conversation with someone a little while ago. I can't remember who I was talking to about this, but, like, the best place to start for someone, I think, who's not, uh, who's not well-versed in the Bible or not a Christian but wants to read Scripture, I think the psalms are a, a, a great place to start because they're poetic and they're beautiful and they contain theological truths but I you know they're really easy to misconstrue sometimes so there's a risk there so um, understanding David knowing David's story is essential for this psalm and really all the psalms but knowing that David was not the perfect man that this psalm essentially (laughs) kind of paints him to be at times uh, saying that I followed the rules and I kept myself blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And, the, and then the Lord is rewarding me according to my righteousness and my cleanness of my hands and spirit. This is verse 24. Um, and, and knowing the story of David and what David did and what he was capable of is kind of, 
it's almost funny to hear him say this like oh sure dude like yeah you were great <laughs> like you didn't kill like a bunch of people yeah you know you didn't commit adultery you didn't you didn't do all of these inherently like mortally sinful things yeah. of course he did but that he always returned to god that he always turned back to god that he always allowed his faith to to guide him when he when he repented that I think is where his, you know, why he was continually built up in his power, you know, that the line built from him because in his heart was always a draw towards God, even if he still had that sinful nature that people always have. Right. So I guess it's not even such a bad thing that, that he was a sinner because, <laughs> because anyway, and anyway, even if, even if we're going by an allegorical interpretation of this, we're all sinners. Yeah, all of us yeah it's an inevitable that. thing that yeah. he was a sinner it's not yeah right. it doesn't actually undermine um that his his moral triumph in, in the song we should all hope for the same actually yeah <laughs> so so i have some other um i don't want to well you, you okay with me just talking yeah of okay. course so okay so um in 42 he says then did i beat them small as the dust before the wind and it just reminded me that there are a lot of things actually in this psalm also the breath of thy nostrils in uh 15 there are a lot of things little sort of little details like that that because i'm so familiar with the creation stories make that they call that to mind and also the fact that it's that it's lent and we just had ash wednesday on ash wednesday they often say uh, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return, which is, you know, based mm-hmm. on the, the Genesis 3.19, which God says to Adam. Um, so in this case, I, I mean, it could be taken as, you know, as, as simply as that I, I made them, I humbled them, I made them small, I, I beat down their ranks, I defeated the enemy. But maybe an <laughs> overly idealistic interpretation of this would be that... Um, if he beat them as small as the dust, they became like dust again, not only in the sense that, that he killed them, <laughs> but also in the <laughs> sense that, that he humbled them. And really for us to be reminded of the fact that we are dust, that we were formed of dust, and to dust we shall return, it is, um, in, its, in its most you know, basic interpretation, uh, speaks to the humility and the fragility of human existence. Um, but then... More, moreover, it's also a, an invitation to return to our origins as dust in the hands of God, um, which means that we can become innocent again. So in a, I sort of interpret David's destruction of his enemies, and even to some extent God's sort of the imagery of God's destructiveness here, um, as a sort of wish for, or perhaps an extension of God's desire for the conversion of the heathen, because then it goes on to talk about the heathen. Uh, so, and, and often in this context, um, the warring factions, the people who were warring with the Israelites were sort of like religious and moral enemies too. I mean, even for just mm-hmm. believing in a different God, so to speak. So uh, th- there would still be, I think, a hope for their conversion. Um, and I think uh, supporting the interpretation of, of just the wanting to return to innocence or the, the desire to return to innocence or to turn away from worldly things is thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people. That's 43. But then 
Um, I, I, I think that conversion is the ultimate aim of God's destructive tendencies, if we can indeed call them destructive. Um, and in Ezekiel, there's, there's a verse that's, uh, I guess I, I did write it down, it's 33, 11. Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn away from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Again, there's sin like unto death. Uh, but it, it just demonstrates, and this is you know one of many passages in which it's demonstrated that God doesn't want evil people to die. He doesn't want evil people to be evil. He doesn't even necessarily want for them to be punished as much as he wants for them to convert and to repent and to become good. Like they're meant to be good by virtue of their creation, how he created mm-hmm. them. Yeah, there's something that the word, for, uh, the Hebrew word for dust there is the exact same word that's used in Genesis 2. Ah, um, God for the man of dust. So it's, it's <laughs> and, and you, you have to pay attention to, you know, how words are used and reused in, in any, when we're, especially when we're reading across different English translations, it's like mm-hmm. people do take liberties with it. But if we understand that, you know, there were fewer hands, at least fewer hands, in the construction of the original scriptures, then we can see a little more intentionality in the reuse of those words. And it takes, yeah, it takes like returning to the um, the essential, like the raw materials that God made you from in order for you to, to really be changed and like remade and reborn. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good point that you have to, you have to be um, sort of beaten down into a dust mm-hmm. and and remade into into like a clay figure that can move uh in order for you to to really be be um be made new in in Christ or in God or or reconcile truly reconciled to God because your old nature has to be destroyed just like mm-hmm. your sin has to be destroyed it all has to be ground down and it also means that the possibility for new life exists within this life and isn't limited to when we die or when we, you know, or, or to eternity, that we actually can have a new life within the lives we've already lived and that, um, that God has an infinite, a sort of, I would say, merciful capacity to, to continually transform and, as David writes, perfect human being. Yeah, and the universalists probably love something like this because they hear it as going, oh, well, see, even if you're dust, God can redeem you. We are <laughs> even, dust. Even, <laughs> I mean, even after you've been destroyed. Oh, wrong. That there's a God, wrong. God's capacity is to still <laughs> redeem you. Wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have you ever read Faust? Okay, you have one you second before you die. It's, if you do it in the last second before you die, you're okay. But once you're dead... <laughs> Show's over. <laughs> that was the whole thing. I, that was my favorite thing about Faust. When I was in when I was in school, I loved. Uh, I also loved Everyman. I loved the, all the Everyman plays, the medieval morality plays. I still love them. That to me is is drama. I love that. <laughs> so I wish they would put them on stage. <laughs> That's what the play should be. <laughs> but it's just it's just Everyman is the character, and then and then you know the personifications of various sins, and then good and evil. And like the angel on his shoulder and the devil on his shoulder, it's ridiculously straightforward. But those are my favorite plays. But Faust, the Christopher Marlowe version, which is in the Norton anthology, which they make you read in school, um, the whole time, all the uh, good is saying to Faust, 
just just repent you can do it right now <laughs> just do it before you die it's fine just do it just repent now you can repent it it's just the devil every time it's just the devil you know yeah and the Faust is like ah but i signed a contract <laughs> like the <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I don't think God will forgive me. It's just so stupid. <laughs> and then, and then, then actually he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it in, uh, I forget if there is any kind of resolution in that version. But then in, interestingly though, in, in uh, Goethe's version of Faust, because there were multiple, um, multiple, uh, the, the classic authors took on the Faust story. I think he actually doesn't successfully repent before he dies, but that there's a woman in heaven who prays for him and her prayers cause God to intercede. So it is interesting that I guess, I guess there is a possibility that after death you can still be redeemed, but it's just, you just better do it before you die. Just do it. It now. seems like a safer <laughs> bet. To yeah. Do. It takes one <laughs> second. Just, I'm sorry, God. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't. I'm I sorry. Don't. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, I might screw up again, but I'm sorry. Okay. I don't agree with that stuff. I don't like what I did. It was wrong. I accept that it was wrong. I'm sorry. God, I love you. <laughs> seems so, it seems so simple, doesn't it? It is that simple. It, <laughs> it's like, and it's like, you know, sometimes I literally am like, I know I'm by my, you're like the only person I've spoken to in weeks and weeks, by the way, which, which is why this conversation is going the way that it is. But I, <laughs> but like, I, um, so often I, I mean, really I'm by myself. So I think to myself when I'm talking to God and I, and I just think like, I see something that's like kind of sad or offensive. And I, and I just say to God, Lord, I'm so sorry for the offenses <laughs> committed against thee. I am so sorry, God, for the offenses committed against you because there are n innumerable offenses against God being committed on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. Are you you're apologizing for for other people too? Well, or just because for they your own make offenses? me feel so bad. It makes me feel bad <laughs> when people offend God. It it hurts me, which you know it didn't it didn't always hurt me. I wasn't always so aware. So part of part of the the consequences of conversion are that you become more sensitive to the to things like what hurts God. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a sign of the indwelling of the spirit, you know, that the Holy Spirit's in you. If you can if you can sense these things that keenly, or you feel them that intensely, and this is something that like the early mystics and mm -hmm. and um, and uh, you know early church, the 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 most emotionally uh, um, emotive early church fathers and and mystics and desert fathers things like that that they felt things so intensely that they were like in a constant state of repentance even if mm -hmm. they hadn't they hadn't themselves sinned they were torturing themselves mentally with the prospects of other people's sins mm -hmm. and the prospects of human humans failing god and it's it's not a bad thing to do but it does feel like like god's going to survive like god's going to be <laughs> God's gonna, be, God's gonna be okay. God has a thick skin. Like do, yeah, do true. your, do your best, right? right. Do, but try, really try, then, really try and do your best. Really try, but yeah, and try to convince try. other people too. Wow. But um, you really can't torture yourself about it because you will absolutely go mad. No, but it's, 
it, it's good to become aware because it, while it is painful, or while it, well, rather I should say, it opens you up to a new kind of pain, a sort of unprecedented pain. Because this pain that I feel on God's behalf has, it's not the same as, you know, empathy for another human being exactly. It's not dissimilar, but it's not, it's not quite the same because, in a, you know, in a way, I would never have considered God's suffering or God's pain prior to reaching this stage in my relationship with my religion. But it's terrible, for example, like how, how people take the Lord's name in vain all the time. Like people with Jesus Christ or God, when they, and, and it was, the reason it relates to this because David is calling upon God. To call upon God or Jesus is so powerful, yet the way people use it, the way people uh, take the Lord's name in vain is incredibly degrading. Yeah, I mean, it's... So I've always been torn on the the use of um, taking the Lord's name in vain because... Like I've, I'd always heard it described in a very different way than I think you're right in that using God in, uh, invoking God flippantly is absolutely wrong. Um, and in a, in a way that doesn't glorify him or, or magnify him, like is absolutely wrong. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's an interesting point. I think I said God earlier in this conversation, actually. Well, I, I say repent. <laughs> I say I say God, and I say, oh, my God, and I say something. I usually don't say Jesus Christ unless I'm really speaking to Jesus Christ directly. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I say, you know, but I'm like, Jesus. Um, but generally, I do, I do sometimes say God and oh, my God, but usually when I'm saying it, it is actually, even if I say it in a colloquial sense, it is still an expression of reverence. So I'll say like, oh, my God, my God, that is so beautiful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I actually am using it, I think, in a way that's appropriate, even though it, it is like colloquial, because it's like I'm really in that I'm actually thanking God or I'm calling, I'm, God is responsible for the beauty that I'm perceiving. Yeah, or I guess when someone's really going through it, you know, when someone's really struggling with something or, right. or having a bad time and they say, oh, my God, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean right. that they're that they're doing so flippantly. They might just really be calling on God. Right, like, like I need your help right now. Absolutely. Man. I need your help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we were talking about um, how words are used in other places in Scripture and how they're repeated in, in, in different instances. And... I wanted to note something that I, we had messaged about earlier, about the use of um, being drawn out of the water. Uh, this was in verse... 16? Was it 16? Yep. Uh, he sent from on high. He took me. Uh, he drew me out of many waters. And... And we were talking about how water can be used and is used frequently, especially in Old Testament writing, as an image of chaos or an image of despair or an image of um, madness or an image of um, basically like uncontrollable life situations or strife in some way or another. Mm -hmm. And um, David here is saying that God 
after appearing thundering through you know thundering the heavens and and um, coming to earth god drew him out of the waters of strife of distress that he's in and that word in the hebrew there for drew me out is only used three times in the old testament and it's used twice in psalms by david and once in exodus to describe uh, moses being pulled out of the water Mm -hmm. as a baby Um, and we can see jesus in different characters in the old testament but primarily i think we see mirrors of christ in david we see mirrors of christ in joseph we see mirrors of christ in moses at times and that's especially why moses appears at the transfiguration and but like that that use of that word shouldn't be um shouldn't be passed over like it feels like that's a very important word to be drawn up is not just to like be redeemed to be saved but to be elevated in that way yes that um and i think generally the psalm it's uh it's like well, I feel like it's really dumb when I say something like it's interesting that you say that because because it's like okay okay you're saying it's interesting who cares like why am I saying it's interesting what does that even mean but so sorry I'm like critiquing myself as I'm trying to talk I'm a very bad speaker um, but the uh, being drawn up out of something and out of a chaos so the situation at the beginning of this psalm is that the sorrows of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men. So again, another another sort of water image, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. And it does sort of c- convey an image of of chaos and disorder and being in darkness and, and sort of sunken, being uh, caught up in something. Um, and so like these waters of of, of chaos uh, but what i like about this psalm is that from you know from the antiphon I, I i thought that i mean i didn't really know the further context but it's an example of uh, the, the suffering is really not the focus of this psalm the triumph is the focus and the suffering is sort of a device that sets up the triumph and i think like there are there are many in fact in almost any image of suffering in the Bible or many many of the significant ones even the most um, abject ones there there is some kind of um, resolution that is like innate in the in the, the description of suffering even when it's a quite a far gone situation like for example lamentations there's a whole chapter of lamentations that um, while you know it's situated in a context of of uh, complete despair um, and and destruction really the destruction of the Holy Land um, and the Temple of Jerusalem. Um, there's still that chapter in which uh, the speaker probably, you know, it's attributed to Jeremiah, says, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him, uh, kind of looking forward to the eventual, or the idea of salvation is at play. And similarly, in like Psalm 88, which we talked about a little bit earlier, um, even though it's it's a, like the, it's regarded as one of the most depressing psalms ever or something like that it, it's <laughs> it still starts with you know calling upon my lord my salvation um so even there and in the suffering servant that's probably one of the most classic examples of of the you know pre-christ uh redeemed suffering in isaiah 
um, he, he, he will not suffer in vain. But I would say that this psalm on the whole is a more triumphant example of suffering, or rather that suffering is, is used mostly, it really isn't about the suffering as such, it's about the triumph, and the suffering is really only there to um, illustrate or to magnify the triumph. And the suffering is just, it, it, it draws an arc where the suffering was just necessary for the victory, uh, but the suffering isn't really the focus. And so, you know, for thou will save the afflicted people. I, I think that sometimes, maybe, maybe I'm just saying, yeah, I, may, I really shouldn't speak in generalizations because not everybody has the same tendencies that I do, but I think that people tend to get caught up, or rather people, I just said I shouldn't speak in generalizations, me. I, yeah. <laughs> but I had a real tendency, and I, and I thought it was very much my religion, how I would think about suffering and how I would also regard my own suffering. And I thought that my suffering was itself the gift and was itself the redemption, that the suffering itself signified my redemption and that I was saved, that I suffered so much, that I suffered greatly, that I felt marginalized, that I was in pain physically and otherwise. I thought that this was the religion itself and that being tortured forever, so to speak, was the religion and was a sign mm. that I was a good Christian and that I would be saved. But, but Christianity is about the victory. And, and so... You know, the passion is important, but the passion does not outweigh the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what you were saying about being drawn up out of the water um, reminded me, for some reason, of one of my favorite parables from the saints. Uh, I never use the word parable correctly, but I think if this is maybe correct, episode, whatever, you know, um, something that happened with one of the saints. Uh, St. Francis famously mm. was afraid of lepers, and then it became his ministry to tend to lepers because... He was afraid of lepers. He was disgusted by them, and because he was a good, he was a good Christian. He was Saint Francis. He prayed to God for the strength <laughs> to be able to kiss a leper, to kiss like a leper's hand or whatever it was, and 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 he he prays to God for the strength, which is of course a great example of the function of prayer. Really, um, he prays to God for the strength, and he does kiss the leper, and in doing so, he isn't lowered by kissing the leper, but rather he exalts both of them with that act. Uh, he converts both of them, too, because he achieves a higher level of Christianity, so to speak. I mean, that's a really poor phrasing, but he becomes more <laughs> of a Christian, a better Christian. So he's converted by the act of humanizing and accepting and loving the outcast, and the outcast, the leper, is exalted, too, in being humanized by Francis's gesture of love. So being drawn out, it's like reaching the hand into the darkness or into objection and pulling something out of it. Yeah, and that's what God—that's what God does regularly with us, like right. in our in our worst times. But and that's that's what Jesus did essentially by right. by being the Christ, by by coming to be with man, stooping well below mm -hmm. his pay grade, so to speak, <laughs> and and and. Uh, sacrificing himself but yeah uh, it's not christianity is not about being perpetually put upon and suffering and just being low for your whole life mm -hmm. it's about what you do with that stooping it's what you do with the action of of um of humbling yourself that results in an elevation of of yourself and others mm -hmm. like uh, Jesus had to die to be to be 
risen, right? right? It, it takes the, the going low to go high. And so... <clears throat> yeah, Isn't that what really... Michelle Obama says? I'm sorry. Oh, I, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not well read. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> they go low, we go high. Michelle Obama. Uh, <laughs> biblically influenced author All right, Michelle, Michelle Obama. Obama. Probably, I don't <laughs> nice. know. <laughs> but yeah, you were right in. Um, you, you mentioned how many psalms and lamentations and in other places like. It's easy to get lost in the the lamentation of it. It's easy to get lost in the, oh, woe is me. And there's a lot of psalms that don't end with this satisfying of a result, right? We, we don't get, we don't always get this resolution. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the end of uh, Habakkuk, too. You know, like there's, there's a lot of prophets and psalms and in lamentations and other places where it's just kind of a grim outlook on things but the thought the the persisting faith is what carries the speaker through all of that and knowing that eventually things will be put right so yeah it's not wrong to to go to the lowest lows but with your mind set on the highest highs Mm -hmm. even jesus himself was not so concerned with his own suffering as he was with his mother's suffering and <laughs> her witnessing him on the cross. Yeah. I mean, he was bummed. You know, yeah, those, well, the, he the, wasn't the, happy about it, no. <laughs> he wasn't thrilled. He, he was bummed, but he knew what had to happen. And, and, and then he said that to his apostles, too. I mean, he said, right. it's time for me to be raised up. But it took an enormous sacrifice. It took an enormous amount of pain and suffering. And it, it came out of God's love of humanity, mm-hmm. which is the most incredible thing. And, you know, it's funny, John 3.16 is always, it's always the thing that, well, maybe not anymore, I don't really know what goes on in the world today, but when I was a kid, on like the, um, like sporting events and stuff, they would, people would hold up signs, you know, they hold up signs, they'd hold up John 3.16 for like the, the, um, the, whatever, the big screen, the jumbotron or whatever, there'd be people holding up signs, John 3.16. Uh, which is, but it's actually a great, one of the greatest lines in the whole Bible, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And I mean, it continues that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But even just that one phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that really the the existence of Jesus Christ, his passion, all the suffering, his death and his resurrection, the reason for it was, it came out of God's love of humanity. It's so profound. It is. And three, John three sixteen through 21 doesn't have the same ring to it. I think it's harder to get someone to look up multiple verses yeah. in Scripture. <laughs> right. But the core of it is the love, right? The core of it is that that it all was born of love, it, sacrifice, but, but in love. And how, how, do we, how do we walk around in this world knowing that this happened? How do people function in this world? And... and Moreover, how do people sin so egregiously and so constantly, knowing knowing that this happened? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that I don't understand. How do people work? <laughs> how do people? <laughs> how do 
How do they do anything? How do people live with themselves? I don't mean that in a mean way. <laughs> but, but really, how do people function? How do they how do they go about life walking down the street knowing knowing that this happened? How do you live? I don't know. Or how do you do anything else yeah. but talk about it? But talk about yeah. it. Think about it. My God. See? Reverence. Reverence. It's it's everything. <laughs> it's it's the truth. It's the most significant. I mean, how can you think about anything else? How can you live for anything else? It's ridiculous to think any, anything even compares remotely. I've been thinking, I, st- I am working right now, but I, I, I in the back of my mind, I'm like, one day I will tender my resignation saying that I need more time to think about the passion I'm sorry, I can't work here anymore. It's just too much. <laughs> God, God, like God so loved the world, but He gave His one only Son. I'm sorry, I can't work for you anymore. I, really, I can't, you know. I can't. <laughs> I'm, I'm very busy thinking about Jesus, sorry, and I don't have time for anything. I just else. can't do it. I don't have the. I literally don't have the faculties. I can't do it. I, <laughs> one day I will. I will resign. <laughs> Why? That's like a. That sounds. I'm sure to some people sounds. Insane. Like madness, but to me that sounds like the best, Normal. the best possible living situation. Yes, can I can I not work and instead just think about Christ and and read about Christ and write about Every Christ day. and talk about Christ? Like, wouldn't that just be the best? Every day, I think I think to myself, today's the day I have to quit my job because I need more time to think about Jesus Christ. Today's the day, and then I'm like, come on, come on, just gather. This is. That's the perfect way to twist that, like, self-help, like, vision board uh, mindset. And just all pictures that, of like, the cross. All pictures yeah, of it's bloody crucifix. The... <laughs> <laughs> That's my vision board for 2023, is the bloody, giant bloody crucifix. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I just started reading um, a book by John Piper, whose theology I don't necessarily align with but he is he's a talented speaker and he's a talented writer and the the core message of what he's expressing in this book is well the book's called don't waste your life Uh which sounds like a motivational (laughs) speaker like a joel osteen type thing but really uh, he the message of it seems to be i'm only three chapters in so far but the message of it seems to be that everything you do needs to be done in service of the glorification of god Mm -hmm. And not just God as like a nebulous, um, the creator, uh, and that's all we know about him, but God through Jesus with the cross in mind, Mm -hmm. knowing about the cross, knowing about the passion, that everything that you do in your life should be done to glorify God in Jesus Christ. And that is an awful uh, challenge for for a lot of us I think I mean just thinking about like what I do for a living it's just like uh, how how in how in the world do I do that in a way that glorifies God well some things of course now this is my opinion as a jerk so take it with a (laughs) grain of salt but some things don't glorify God (laughs) some things don't glorify God and some things do and the the project of my life in the last few years has been increasingly narrowing my experiences, the experiences that I allow myself to have, <laughs> to to con- mostly contain, or in as much as that is possible, things which glorify God. And so the, all of my time, effort, energy, money, whatever, anything I could possibly expend, 
is on those activities, which is why I want to quit my job. Not that my job does any real measurable wrong. It's not like I, you know, it's not, it's not like the most horrible job you could have, but it's still pointless. And if it's not glorifying God, why should I do it? I really shouldn't. I really have no business doing anything that doesn't glorify God. But that's why my life is so um, hard <laughs> in a way. But yeah. it's, it's hard, but it's actually incredible. And I feel extremely privileged to live such a, a life that is so um, that is so focused in that way, that, that is really devoted to seeking out and excelling in these devotional activities. Yeah, you know, the, um, I feel like we're, we're, we're due for a comeback of, like, the monastic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is there's, there used to be uh, mechanisms in place to make that livelihood possible for people. And, and, right. and it seems like that's a narrowing, narrowing window. You have to be associated with certain churches. You have to fit a certain mold. And, I mean, I'm not saying that like the early church would just like let any old any old freakazoid weirdo go up you know go join their <clears throat> their their crew but it was almost like more of a that oh that evangelical adage that they like to say so much that I think is actually good at its core but uh belong believe behave you're here first come and join us and you will be made perfect in in Christ you, mm-hmm. over time through your faith and and through the changing of yourself you will be made perfect in Christ and like that it's it's so I wonder how many are there more of us are we the only the only <laughs> are there two? more people that want to that want to do this there have to be right but there have to be people I know I, of course again you know I shouldn't speak about people like this, but I, I, I feel like most people have, I feel like, in fact, everybody has this, the innate longing for God. I believe that. I believe everybody has that. And everybody has, and they often try to fill the emptiness with other things. And especially, now I'm going to sound like a real, I mean, people, you know, whatever, people will say whatever. They, they, people are always trying to figure a person out politically or whatever. So, I mean, but but it's like, I'm not I'm not suggesting that things used to be better for what it's worth but in you know modern people struggle with this i think in a different way than people used to or maybe more keenly because there are a lot of anti-religious influences not that the institution of religion has ever been good or perfect it certainly hasn't but we no longer have the certain certain like organizing factors as a society that present religion in a way that is accessible maybe in our lives or of which we're part um so i think people have this longing and that it's as unfilled as ever and they look for other things and other ways to fill it that will never really satisfy that and that's why often people people who are living in sin are in pain yeah that's um ecclesiastes 3 right Mm -hmm. he has uh he also set eternity in the hearts of men like we all have that longing yeah to know God or to understand in and the language that we might use for it is different. Our backgrounds, our upbringings, the environments that we grow up in can change our perception of what that longing is. But that longing is like innate in, in every single person, even the most even the most certain of atheist people mm-hmm. always seem to have some notion that there is a 
greater good and, and you know or a greater force or a greater power and usually their greater power is like you know nature or yeah the earth or something like, like that percy to shelley i guess is who you're thinking <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like like um even the fact that atheists think there's something they have to argue against you know would imply etc <laughs> It's like if you're arguing Checkmate. against it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Did I ever tell you I lived with an atheist recently who, just like this really, I mean, we don't have to get into it because for a lot of reasons we shouldn't, but what was funny was he would say stuff like um, that he just, he has an inclination to believe and he in t consciously um, tramples the inclination to believe that he feels because he doesn't want want to believe, and so his atheism is really like a a choice that's motivated by his not wanting to believe, even though he does. He's inclined to believe. And one time we uh. were we were discussing, um, rather I was discussing <laughs> Jesus Christ with him and God's infinite capacity for mercy, and and then as we were talking, I was I have a you know I can't see behind me but I was you know I was looking at him and he was looking at, behind me a cross appeared in the sky it was nighttime uh, I don't know how or, or what but there was a, a cross appeared in the sky and and the funny and he said look at that and I said well would you look at that and what's funny is that in my interpretation it's like well there's an omen if I've ever seen one that's pretty straightforward what he does is takes out his phone he takes a picture of it but and then goes on continuing to live as he has you know what I mean <laughs> it's like okay <laughs> But it was so sad when he was like, yeah, well, I'm, you know, he's like, whatever, 50-some-year-old man. And he's like, yeah, well, I don't want to believe, so I, I don't. I intentionally prevent myself. I, I, like, any thought I have of believing, I shut off in my head. Okay. That sounds like a horrible way to live. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like more work to try to shut off your heart to that than it is to just um, allow well, it to be open. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't need to become a biblical scholar. You don't have to, like... No. Uh, pray the rosary every day. It's good. It's great should. if you do. But yeah, <laughs> it's, great. it's great if you do. But like, it's so much more work to be like, no, yeah. no, love is love is fake. Love is fake. It's chemicals. There's no. There's no. Why would you rather think that anyway? True... It's so sad. It's so much sadder. It's, it makes life so much uh, more meaningless than it must be. It's just sad. <laughs> You know, that reminds me of um, the fact that humility uh, humility is a very poorly understood virtue. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> it, sounded like a, it sounded like a setup for something. It sounded like I was going to say more, didn't it? But I didn't. Well. <laughs> you were trying to be humble. <laughs> yeah. You're right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just dumb. Um, well, well, there's more I could say. I guess because I, I think people often misconstrue it's hard for me to say exactly what i mean because in my own life i have uh, adopted a an attempt at a conscious practice of humility so i intentionally avoid many situations um in order to make myself in order to humble myself and i avoid so and it's funny because we once prayed the litany of humility together and in the litany of humility it, you know, it, it's asking uh, for multiple things. It says, you know, Jesus grant me the grace to desire it. And it's asking for things that, I mean, you could say are humiliating, uh, but they're actually in many, would by many be considered to be quite negative. 
um, being passed over by someone who is less qualified than you, or or even being um, being libeled. You know, it's like asking for the opportunity to be humiliated uh, in those ways. And humiliation, of course, depending on the context. Um, by definition, though, the, the term really means to be made humble, so humiliation isn't a terrible thing. But um, the fear of humiliation, and of course that connects to the sin of pride, the fear of humiliation drives many people away from religion, I think, mm-hmm. um, and really truly accepting religion. And again, you know, it's like the fear of lowering oneself, the fear of becoming dirty, becoming marginal, becoming like... Jesus became in order to love us. Um, so that's it, it's a requirement of Christianity, humility is. But people just don't understand why a person would do good things with no, no ulterior motive. So I've been in situations where I've been attempting to, to do acts of service for other people because what is my life? What is the meaning of my life? Part of how I balance out the fact that I am an extreme artist, which I feel sometimes, even though I think that is my, uh, um, what's the word? Oh my goodness gracious. My calling or whatever. <laughs> there was another word of my vocation. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> even though I think that, even though I think it's quite important and that it's not, it's not misaligned with my religion. I do sometimes, I'm some con- sometimes concerned that it's a self-indulgent and decadent activity. The things that I do to make myself the greatest artist that I could be. Um, so then I try to balance that out with acts of service towards other people because you should, one should rather, um, you know, participate in charitable acts towards other people at all times. And, you know, who would, I don't think, I, I think Christ wouldn't have it any other way. So it's important to do those things. And it's important to be involved with people and to be involved with the, the lowest of the low people as well. So there are things that I would do it's funny, like, they're, that sort of ju- to juxtapose these experiences. Like, I'm a classical musician. I could give performances as a classical musician in, like, a very decorated way, a very sort of, you know, sophisticated whatever, like, a very, uh, it's, a, it's a regal thing. It's a dignified thing. And then I go home, and I get on my hands and knees, and I scrub floors, you know, for other people, <laughs> and clean up other people's messes. Yeah. I mean, not even my own. Clean up other people's messes, and I scrub floors, and I you know, do things of that nature. And the people in my life, um, not people with whom I've intentionally surrounded myself, but people I encounter sometimes in those situations are like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Like, that's weird. <laughs> or they say, oh, they make jokes about it. And they say like, oh, you're our slave. Ha ha, you're our slave, you know, or something. Or you must like being, you must like being humiliated. And it's like, well, I like being humiliated in the sense that I like to be like Jesus Christ. I don't like to be humiliated in the sense of any anything to do with like a, you know, the social, like, shame or whatever. It's got nothing to do with that. So I think people don't really understand what humility means. Not that I do. Yeah, that... <laughs> the, like, the distinction between humiliation, humility, and, like, being humble, right. uh, that literally all supposed to kind of be the same thing, but the, the connotation uh, of all those things uh, is hugely different. But it is. It's a fear. It's a persistent fear. It's probably what drives most people's uh, other fears too, right? When you when you just think about all the social things that you are won't won't put yourself up to, or you won't um, you know, won't even try um, new new things. You won't even try, or um, people you won't you won't talk to. 
it's because you're afraid of looking stupid or saying something stupid or someone pointing out that you're not you're not good or you're not uh, satisfactory to them or or whatever you know all those things but at, at, at the core if you always approach those situations from a position of humility then the humiliation itself isn't really like the cruelty of others has no bearing on your value mm -hmm. so your humility it should be your like your position where you start from any new relationship that you have or any new conversation that you start or or anything like that and and you can't yeah um I just saw what time it was. I think we need. <laughs> I think oh. we need to wrap up. Unfortunately, I'm so sorry. That's oh, okay. Well, um, uh, well, should we say anything more? Because the way we could bring that back to David is that, for example, if you well, do you want me to stop talking completely? <laughs> do you want me to oh, um, because I could connect. I could make a connection if it's at all desired. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Let's let's okay. circle it back. <laughs> Yeah, let's circle it back to let's David, and then, yeah, we'll just, we'll just, like, do okay. five, and then, yeah. All right, well, well, so, um, <laughs> I promise I really have it, I'm just an idiot. Uh, so, <laughs> so, for, for example, uh, with, with Francis and the leopard, why was Francis afraid to kiss the leopard's hand? Is it because the leopard physically, leopard physically repulsed him? Possibly. But it may be was because the leper was an outcast and that lepers were seen as sort of subhuman or undesirable and that we were supposed to stay away from them. The people in polite society stayed away from them. There are a variety of reasons he may have been afraid to kiss the leper. And often people are afraid of, like we've discussed, lowering themselves, admitting to their weakness or making themselves weak. David, in this psalm, openly proclaims his weakness and, and cries out to God and allows God to deliver him. And through God's deliverance, David triumphs. Yeah, he starts from a position of being in distress. He starts from a position of being in, insufficiently strong to handle the terrible things that are happening to him. But by reaching out to God, by turning to God in that, um, he is then not only able to overcome that difficult situation or, or overcome his enemies as like the, the war and battle metaphor that he always uses. But he is then also like his lineage, his, his whole family is blessed Forevermore. through his ability and his willingness, yeah, to, to turn to God in this rather than trying to overcome on his, on his own. Oh, also, and this, this is like just an image, 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 image. It's like no context really that I, I won't elaborate on it. But then the earth shook and trembled in, uh, what is it, verse six or seven, and uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, of course, the earth, the earth shakes. And that's one of the indications to the Roman soldiers uh, that prompts them to say, truly, this was the Son of God in Matthew. So mm -hmm. I, always, I, always love, I always love hearing about the earth trembling. <laughs> uh, do you mind if I close this out with a prayer? No. No, <laughs> no don't pray. What am I supposed to no. say? Absolutely not. <laughs> On your We're show. Not. Don't pray. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, I've been raving about this book, the Oxford Book of Prayer that I got. That's like a big collection of different written prayers from different faith traditions and different denominations and whatnot. Um, this one is from Soren Kierkegaard, and it is in the section of the book entitled Seeking. 
We have our treasure in earthen vessels, but thou, O Holy Spirit, when thou livest in a man, thou livest in what is infinitely lower. Thou Spirit of holiness, thou livest in the midst of impurity and corruption. Thou Spirit of wisdom, thou livest in the midst of folly. Thou Spirit of truth, thou livest in one who is himself deluded. O continue to dwell there, thou who does not seek a desirable dwelling place, for thou wouldst seek there in vain. Thou creator and redeemer to make a dwelling for thyself. O continue to dwell there, that one day thou mayest finally be pleased by the dwelling which thou didst thyself prepare in my heart, foolish, deceiving, and impure as it is. Amen. Pretty woman, won't you pardon?